From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Priyamvada Gopal, and I'm a university reader at the University of Cambridge in England. I've always wanted to be a teacher of some sort. Um, I loved books, but I also liked talking about books. And I thought I might become a school teacher, but as I got older, I decided uh, to become a university teacher. Once described as an obscure Cambridge lecturer after a high-level academic spat on live British radio, in truth, Priyamvada Gopal is anything but... There are few public intellectuals who think and write on the subjects of India and colonialism with as much influence and insight. A reader at the University of Cambridge in Anglophone and related literature, she has a PhD from Cornell and specialises in colonial and post-colonial literature. Priya Gopal has said that since dictators, war criminals and bankers also read Shakespeare, we can't claim that literature will inevitably make society more humane and imaginative. But, she adds, it does engage most people's ethical capacities. Her new book, Insurgent Empire, looks at the factors influencing dissent in Britain in relation to the empire from the early 1800s right through to the post-war period. Priya Gopal, tell me about your childhood. Where were you? What stands out in your memories of childhood? I was the child of a diplomat, and so I grew up in South Asia rather than India alone. Uh, I was born in Delhi. We moved when I was very young to Sri Lanka, Colombo, uh, came back to Delhi, and then spent a few years in Bhutan before coming back to Delhi. So I had a very South Asian childhood, uh, a pan-South Asian childhood, if you like. I was raised like very many middle class children in India are bilingually. I grew up speaking Hindi, Tamil and English. Uh, I did, of course, have an Anglophone education. We lived very modestly. Civil servants weren't paid very well back in the day. and um, But we had happy childhoods. We read, we played out in outdoors, uh, uh, were relatively safe in uh, little enclaves. Um, and I went to Catholic school again, as many young middle-class Indian girls tend to. When you think of childhood, is it India? Is it Sri Lanka? Is it Bhutan? Where is the place in your mind that you're thinking about when you talk about childhood? In a sense, it's all of them. I mean, Delhi is very much at the heart uh, of my memories, but my earliest memories are of Sri Lanka. I My very first language was Sinhala. Um, and I spoke it before I spoke anything else. And I think for me, that childhood brought a sense of the enormous diversity of the subcontinent. So I, you know, my first memories are of a small tropical island. We then moved to Delhi, which is a hot place on the plains and the northern plains of India. And then we were deep in the Himalayas uh, when I was about six or seven years old uh, before coming back to Delhi. And I think that was really uh, foundational for my sense of the subcontinent as a very vast and diverse place, which can't really be summed up in a sentence. And if not an awareness intellectually of the range, the scope, the depth of colonialism. Indeed, um, very different experiences of colonialism. Of course, in Bhutan's case, there was no formal colonialism, uh, as in the case of Nepal, but Sri Lanka and India were both part of the British Empire, had somewhat different relationships uh, to the empire in terms of how decolonization 
came about. But of course, um, you also become aware as you grow up of India's presence in the region as a huge power and in, in some sense perceived um, as a semi-colonial power. For a young person to go from living in Sri Lanka, tropical environments uh, to the Himalayas, a huge change. What was it like? Uh, arriving in the Himalayas and and, and taking that in? Um, we arrived there when I was about six years old. And I think my dominating memories of my years there is that it would get dark early. So it would be dark by 3.30. Uh, but we had to hurry back from school because of the possibility of running into bears um, or wild animals. And that for a child coming from Delhi <laughs> was quite a startling change. <laughs> was it change. a genuine threat? Uh, yes, I believe it was. We we had uh, people whose pet dogs were taken away by, uh, I believe it was leopards, am I, or, or, or bears? I can't remember, but we certainly heard of wild animals coming down from the mountains and taking away livestock and small animals. You talk about enclaves living in small communities, presumably diplomatic ones or at least expat communities. Yes. Was there a lot of freedom? Were you allowed the run of the streets or the mountains, as it were? Oh, absolutely not. Um, I think, you know, young Indian middle class children are very sheltered, very protected, um, certainly not allowed the run of the streets. There are very, in some sense, there are strict class uh, divisions that come into play and where you can go and where your mother says you might play are restricted. But of course, in my case, gender also came into play. And um, young Indian women uh, have never been allowed the run of the streets and certainly not after 7.30, which in my head still remains my curfew. How, how, how did that manifest as a child? What were you told? Um, we were told that there were bad people out there and certainly that girls were at particular danger of being um, assaulted or um, attacked and that we had to always stay within, uh, you know, hearing range of our mothers. Uh, my, my mother was sort of fairly uh, strict and clear about boundaries and she said, you go out after you do your homework at five o'clock and you're back by 7.30. And I think that curfew actually remained. Uh, even when we moved to Europe for a few years when I was a teenager, uh, 7.30 was the sort of, you know, cut off line in, in our family. On the question of sort of political awareness, your father was a diplomat, you say, to what extent were you aware of his work and the projection of power? You say you recognise that India was this great beast in the region. But did you understand what dad was doing and what the purpose of India's role in the region was? I, d I can't say that I especially understood very much about politics till uh, really well after I went to college. Um, so growing up, I simply had a sense of India being at the centre of things and India being certainly in South Asia important and my dad doing important work. But I really don't think I had um, a tremendous sense of what was going on. My father is very much a newspaper reader, very much, um, uh, I would say, a sort of centrist intellectual. Um, and I picked up a lot of interest in politics and political affairs from conversations that went on at home. But I, I think it would be wrong to say that I had a particularly critical sense of matters until um, I was an adult. So where does literature enter the scene for you? At what age are you engaging in a very serious way? 
Um, I think it slightly depends on what you mean by serious. Certainly as a very <laughs> young child, I was reading everything that I, I suspect uh, you and, uh, you know, children, English-speaking children elsewhere read. I was reading Enid Blyton. I was reading um, Indian stories written in, in English, in Indian mythological stories. Indian mythological yes. stories written in English? Yes. Uh, why, there was a, why in English? Well, I think that there was an awareness uh, that the, that middle class Indian children spoke English was our passport to you know success and professional uh, qualifications, mm-hmm. and um, it I think it was an awareness that uh, there was a if you like a group of people who would be English speaking but would also need to be made Indian in some sense, so that they would have a kind of dual passport into the world. So was there this? I mean, you can travel to India today to certain parts of the country. And you can meet people that are more sort of toffee, English-accented than anyone mm-hmm. you'll meet in Britain. Mm-hmm. And you see various representations of that in, in, in India still. Is that the sort of influence that you're talking about that shapes something like that? I think slightly different. I think that the milieu I grew up in and, and many people like me grew up in was not exactly toffee-nosed and upper class. I mean, mm. it was actually a, a fairly nationalist milieu, a, a milieu that was very uh, proud of the independent struggle, very clear about India's sovereignty, very invested in the project of India. Um, I think that there was a kind of canny, practical awareness, if you like, that English was needed, but that they also had to be in some sense taught to be Indians. So I think that the, the Amar Chitra Katha, these are the sort of cartoons written in English that I'm talking about that conveyed story, historical and mythological stories, uh, were intended to produce English-speaking kids who would nonetheless be Indian. And in, in, in some sense, when they meant Indian, they were overwhelmingly also Hindu stories that, that we were raised on. Can you tell me one of these stories? Um, I actually, it's, again, it's quite interesting. My, the first two uh, stories I remember reading, one was the life of the god Krishna. Um, and I remember reading about Krishna as a child growing up, you know, raised by uh, cow herds um, in, a, in a context where there was a lot of milk and his exploits sort of eating butter and drinking milk and stealing uh, sweets. Uh, so, you know, we had the sort of image of Krishna as a playful, milk-loving God, who was nonetheless a child. But I also remember that the other comic I read in English was the story of the Buddha. And that was, the tenor of that was very different. It was sort of sober, philosophical, perhaps uh, even a little somber um, and, and more devotional. So I think there was this sort of fairly narrow but interesting range of stories about ancient India, which weren't only Hindu, but were very dominated by Hindu mythology. So at what point then does the interest that you're taking in literature become more significant? I think that happens when I am about 12 or 13 and we, my mother brings home what she calls the classics. And so she brings Jules Verne around the world in 80 days, uh, peculiarly enough, Heidi, uh, <laughs> uh, which isn't very... <laughs> Does this fall uh, into the classics category? Yeah, to, well, to, to her it did, but she was, she was keen that I stop reading about Noddy and the famous five and move on to something a little bit more serious. And I think we moved on to reading Louisa May Alcott, uh, Little Women, uh, and then from there on to the, you know, the Jane Austen, um, Charlotte Bronte, and then school uh, uh, brought in you know English literature, and we read bits of the classics, as they call them, there as well. It sounds like an incredibly, incredibly colonial sort of literature project yes. on the surface. Yes, 
for, as you describe it, a relatively nationalistic milieu yes. in which you're growing up. Yes. Explain that. Well, I explain this to my students every year um, when we do the course on Indian English writing. I explain to them that I am present in the classroom because of an enormously successful project of cultural eugenics, um, uh, which was really put in place by Lord Macaulay's minute in 1835, where he pronounced that in India, we need a class of interpreters between us and the millions whom we govern, English in every way, but blood and colour. The idea was that you would create a middle class, um, uh, an interfacing class between the British administrators, who were a very small number in India, and the sort of vast, sub diverse subcontinent which they had to rule. And they needed the help, uh, really, of an upper caste, upper class milieu who would act as interpreters. And I am descended from people, from, you know, Brahmin men who were chosen for that role, people who became lawyers and doctors and clerks and engineers um, and spoke English while at the same time maintaining very rigid, you know, Brahmin orthodoxies at home. So that kind of dual track is, is what I inherited. Not everyone will be familiar with the caste system in yes. India. Just explain the importance of the Brahmin in this story. Yes. Well, I mean, I, I can't give a, a potted account of caste in India. It's far too complex. But the Brahmins, if you like, are at the top of the caste hierarchy. They are priestly class to start with. Um, they certainly had complete control of the scriptures and of education. They're a, they're a clerisy. And often, even though they may not have had economic capital, they were not often the wealthiest in the hierarchy. They were certainly considered at the very spiritual top um, and wielded an enormous amount of cultural and political power from that position. So when you explain this story to your students at Cambridge of how you're a product of this particular ambition, this project, what do you tell them is the outcome? How do you articulate what the impact of that is? Well, I, I do tell them that they need to reflect on this curious moment then an, an Indian woman in a, in a classroom in Cambridge, you know, addressing a, a class of largely white English children. I tell them that uh, in reflecting on how I have come there and how we're discussing the things that we're discussing, and I discuss this in my book, The Indian English Novel, part of what happens, of course, is that this class of interpreters that is successfully created by Macaulay's project then takes what they've been taught, takes the English English language and melds it with their sense of their own culture and their own uh, need to exercise sovereignty. And out of that comes the Indian Nationalist Project. So the Indian Nationalist Project, on the one hand, is a project of resistance to British colonialism. But on the other hand, it's also heavily dominated by people who are at the top of the caste hierarchy, who do have uh, control of culture and politics in India. And I ask my students to think about that kind of dual heritage, which accounts not just for me, but for the Indian English novels and poetry that they're reading. So going back to your teenage years, and you're presented with these classics, among them Heidi, how did they affect you? 
they affect me in, um, in the in very much in the way that uh, the Kenyan critic Ngugi Wa Thiongo has described in his book Decolonizing the Mind. My imagination was very heavily Europeanized. And, you know, people have written about this. Um, you know, I, I could recite poems about daffodils and never seen I don't think I saw a daffodil t- till 2001, frankly, when I arrived in England. But I could recite Wordsworth. Um, so I had a head full of children going off on jolly picnics. I had uh, Wuthering Heights. I'd never, I didn't know what a moor was. In fact, I still haven't been to Yorkshire. So I don't think I've actually seen a bona fide moor. But I still, um, you know, my, my head was full of the kind of deep, dark beauty of the, of the moors uh, from reading Wuthering Heights, Daffodils, the Lake District. So I think I had a kind of geographical imagination that bore no relationship to where I was actually living and reading it's these texts. It's a peculiar, so. almost perverse scenario. It is. It is. But it, it's curious. On the one hand, you could see it as, as colonizing your mind and uh, narrowing your imagination. On the other hand, as Ngugi himself goes on to acknowledge, it also gives you a certain odd kind of cultural power that, yeah. that you're actually able to then go uh, from one culture to another and you know very quickly adapt yeah. because your mind is sort of used to making these leaps. So a lot of us have a book that we read as teenagers that was sort of an awakening somehow was did you have that Oh, that's a that's a very good question. I always uh, hesitate a little bit when people ask about the most uh, influential book. I don't know that there was uh, the most influential book, but the one I remember being compelled by as a as a young woman, maybe of 14 or 15, was in fact Jane Eyre, which I think, uh, you know, many, many women across uh, the world probably have read and have been influenced by. So for you, what did it speak to? It spoke to my sense of being constrained. It spoke to my sense of uh, us in the world uh, as a, you know, not being particularly wealthy, but nonetheless reading books and being, having a certain amount of cultural command. Um, And the idea of a sort of young woman who felt a bit locked in, who didn't have economic power, who, you know, who was the poor relation, all of that very much resonated. As I said, we didn't grow up uh, particularly wealthy, uh, but we grew up reading and we grew up having that kind of command of language and ideas. And I, uh, and that's, and the sort of the slow growth through education into a job and finding her voice through that. And I think, I think that that struck a very personal note for me. I want to read to you something you have said about literature. You said that since dictators, war criminals and bankers also read Shakespeare, we can't claim literature will inevitably make society more humane and imaginative, but it does engage most people's ethical capacities. Yeah. Has it engaged your capacity in that way? Yes, it has. Um, And I I would hope that at least some of my students have been engaged uh, by literature in those ways. Again, you know, I think that you can read a book um, and you can come out uh, not having been in any sense influenced by it or not not in any sense engaging differently. But I think if you read seriously, you can develop the capacity to imagine the lives of others Mm. and to, if not become a better person, I was using that slightly tongue-in-cheek, I think to certainly develop capacities of imagining how other people occupy the world and relate to each other. Are you making a comment, though, about the dictators, the criminals, the bankers in your lifetime? Are you saying that they don't read or that they've failed to understand 
what they're reading? My point there was that um, very often, and this is again comes from the colonial project, uh, that the idea that if you send Shakespeare out into the world or that you send um, uh, Wordsworth out into the world, um, you are bringing the beneficial effects of the British Empire to subjects, to benighted subjects who will then awake into uh, enlightenment. I was challenging that narrative. And I think that that is a narrative often used by elites who rule uh, in different places, whether it is in India, whether it is, uh, say, in England, that somehow if you have a certain amount of cultural capital under your belt, you're fit to rule and you're a, you're a better person and you know more. And I'm questioning that idea. So you're talking about a literary awakening as a teenager. Does that happen simultaneously with a political awakening? Or do you think that a a political awakening can only come once you have the tools to interpret and understand it that you might get through an engagement seriously with literature. I'm sure it works differently for different people, but I think that literature works best as a tool of, uh, for a lack of a better term, awakening or political consciousness when it is read alongside history. And I think it was really uh, only when I was in high school and then moved on to college and then graduate school that I started to engage with history much more seriously. And for me, I think that kind of critical capacity started to come together when I was able to interface literature with history. So what was the bit of history, if you like, that bothered you, that got you activated? I went to high school in Vienna, uh, in Europe, where my father was posted for a few years. And uh, we began there to, to do fairly serious history, uh, one of um, communism in Europe and the other of Nazism. And we had a very interesting history teacher. One of them was um, an American who was left wing um, and who actually began to teach us right around the time that we were doing communism. This is just a year or two before the wall comes down, began, begins to tell us about the complexity of the communist project, that it wasn't all, you know, just about uh, bad Stalin and bad communists and good people in the West and good capitalist, uh, capitalists who bring freedom. She starts to tell us about things like McCarthy um, and, and the sort of, and Marx and the sort of original impulses behind the communist project. So and it introduces nuance to your understanding. Absolutely. And I think that studying that alongside Nazism and, you know, studying Nazism in Vienna has its own very particular resonances. I think that really brought a sense of depth very early on to how my classmates and I engaged with history. So how old are you at this point? I'm about 16. And this is sort of close to, to the wall coming yeah, down? Yeah, so this is, a, let us say, it, this is around 1985-86. Okay, incredible moment to be in Europe. Yes, and to be having a political historic awakening. Yes. I mean, this is before I wasn't there when, when the wall itself comes down, but it was certainly in the lead up uh, to that kind of uh, moment, which now has become a, a very bland, triumphal moment in, in Western history. Mm. But I was in a school which was an international school and where we didn't have a sense of, um, you know, European history being the only form of history to study. And I think that I, I'm quite sort of grateful in retrospect for having had a multi-pronged approach to history. So in your mind, how then does this learning and this awakening segue into a more critical understanding of your own 
nation of origins history? Yes. So I go back to India on the one hand, having for the first time in my life dealt with terrible racism. Um, Austria in the mid 1980s was not a pleasant place to be a a person who was not white um, or a person who was not Christian. Um, And I went back uh, tremendously in a sense, uh, maybe traumatized by the racism I'd seen, but also deeply appreciative of those bits of European culture that I had, uh, you know, fed on and and gleaned uh, ideas from. Going back to India was a tremendous shock because I saw the the incredible uh, poverty and the incredible social differences again. I was also tremendously shocked now that I was a young woman by the level of sexism and misogyny that I would see on the streets. Um, And I would see would also experience experience. Yeah, sorry, not just, um, you know, there was constant catcalling. There were men, if you took a bus by yourself, there were men feeling you up on, on buses. The threat of sexual violence was never very far. And I think that still continues to be the case, certainly in places like Delhi. I had begun at this stage to read feminism. Um, and I do actually remember reading Jermaine Greer, the female eunuch, <laughs> at about age 18, which was... On a uh, bus in Delhi? On a bus in Delhi, indeed. Um, I went to an all-women's college, was very grateful, in fact. I was very angry at first that I was going to an all-women's college, but ended up being tremendously grateful uh, for actually being able to, to do ideas and talk ideas without worrying about what boys uh, thought of me. Uh, but at the same time, was also coming into... Uh, into close contact with the most vicious aspects of sexual patriarchy. Can you tell me what that what that first experience was that stands out in your mind when you come back to Delhi as a teenager and you you witness or experience these sorts of things happen? Tell me what you recall. So I'm on a bus and um, and this would happen more than one time and there wasn't a single incident. Uh, men would come up behind you and rub themselves on you. Um, and I, rem- I learned to use my elbows very, very skillfully. With their hands? What's the sort of... Um, no, they'd rub themselves, uh, their bodies against your body. And, you know, it was frottage um, and, and that was very, very common. Uh, and you had to either turn around and scream or you know, punch them with your elbow. Um, I know that I know some women who just simply carried safety pins in their hands to poke, uh, you know, people who were sort of infringing their personal space Did in this way. I didn't do that, but I can still use my elbows very niftily, <laughs> very quickly. <laughs> yes. So how does that sit with what you're reading and learning in terms of feminism, in terms of presenting whatever opinion you wish, facing sort of almost assumption that this will happen in the society from which you come? Feminism was tremendously liberating. I mean, it really helped me understand both kind of sort of restrictions and, um, you know, dicta that I was facing at home, but also what was happening out in the streets. Um, and as I said, I went to a women's college and it was a very empowering experience because we were but taught... It's, but it's theoretical, right? But then you're out on the street and you experience the physical alternative, I suppose. Um, It's not just theoretical. I think once you start to understand that you're in a patriarchal context, that that context replicates itself across the world in different ways, that sexual power is something often wielded as a weapon uh, by patriarchy, you begin to understand why it's happening. And that does, um, I think it finesses your rage. Um, And what is a kind of inchoate, angry helplessness turns into something that is more knowing and less willing to take what is dished out. And what shape does that take? 
um, that shape takes the shape of sort of militant feminism. So uh, really, in, in my years as an undergraduate, uh, my politics were pretty much feminist, but they were middle class feminists. So I was very aware of such things as uh, sexual violence and such things as, as uh, not having equal opportunities in the workplace, of, of being you know discriminated against in higher education and so on and so forth. I had very little sense of the complexities of patriarchy in relation to questions, say, of class or indeed caste. Are you experimenting with how you express yourself? Are you experimenting with how you behave with this newfound confidence, I suppose? I am, you know, as I said, the the context of an all uh, single sex college was important. And I think that what what it did was that that I think we grew up in that college uh, very differently in terms of our body language and the way in which we related to young men than equivalent, uh, than, you know, classmates who went to uh, mixed uh, sex colleges, um, and I, I was very—I remember being very struck by that as a nineteen-year-old. But are you getting into arguments? Are you having debates? Are you going home and sort of locking horns Absolutely. with someone? Absolutely. Yes, I would lock horns with my parents about uh, modesty was extremely important at home when I was growing up. And, so tell me know, about to, one of the arguments. Well, being told to cover up to make sure that you know any any desirable parts of your body uh, be covered up. Um, um, and I remember going back and having tremendous arguments and writing terrible poetry about being, <laughs> you know, about being oppressed and not being allowed to show my legs um, and, and, and so on. Can you tell me about the first time you decided, right, I'm pushing back? I can't remember a first time, but I do remember getting into tremendous arguments with my mother, and I'm sure she has terrible memories um, as well, about, you know, why I was carrying the burden of shame and why women needed to carry the burden of shame. And I think I started to understand very early on that shame was a weapon used uh, by patriarchy at home to inculcate and educate young women. So was there a sense of resentment at your own mother? Tremendous, tremendous. I cannot say that my relationship with my mother when I was a teenager and a very young woman was an easy one. Um, and I also began to understand uh, uh, in a curious way that women are simultaneously at the mercy of patriarchy and often carry out its bidding. Um, and I could see in my own mother, who, who, you know, who, who hadn't had an easy life necessarily uh, as a woman, I could see that kind of double-edged uh, manifestation of patriarchy in her behavior. You know, she was also the woman who told me, I remember I was three years old when she said to me, you mustn't marry until you can stand on your own two feet, until you're educated and you have a job and you must always, always have your own salary. So she was a feminist of, for her generation. But at the same time, uh, you know, that, that feminism had its limit. So how does it go from this scenario to becoming a public intellectual? Well, three letters, three very significant letters, JNU, Jawaharlal Nehru University. Um, I go there to do my master's. Um, I go there in part because I've heard that it's different. It's uh, uh, it's not the usual run-of-the-mill university. I go there and suddenly my mind is really blown apart. I suddenly start to see everywhere debates about class, caste, uh, economics, poverty, uh, distribution, global politics. And I'm exposed to an enormous uh, variety of ideas and uh, political uh, debates, uh, which I think was really a foundational moment for me. So how do you take that into the public sphere? How do you become someone that doesn't just sit at dinner parties listening, but actually shapes thought? 
Well, I think that in the years that followed, including when I moved to America, and that was, of course, the very beginning of the internet, I started to join groups on the internet debating ideas. And and suddenly, I, you know, you start to have a sense of being able to operate not just in, in rooms and having debates in rooms or in, in large um, uh, gatherings, but also with people you might not see, um, might not meet, um, ever meet and have uh, discussions and debates with them. And I think once that began, I was able to bring together writing and thinking and then being able to sort of, in a sense, self-publish. And, and, and Those sorts of environments are notoriously fractious yes. and brutal. Yes. Are you someone that relishes that? <laughs> you, you like the fight, you, you sniff the blood and you go for it? I think the early days I liked it as a blood sport and it was tremendous fun. Um, I, I think I particularly enjoyed locking horns with male uh, intellectuals who were very, very authoritative and thought they knew exactly what, what was to be done and said. And I enjoyed and why? that. Tell me, tell me why. Well, I think, again, this was that thread of feeling that patriarchy wasn't just restricted to home and to the mainstream, but was also very present in progressive, you know, uh, countercultural left-wing circles as well. How does a male in Indian culture who is maybe progressive, is an intellectual, put down a woman that is trying to express a different view? Well, I think, you know, uh, I don't think India is different in that regard. I think you will be familiar. Uh, but come on, there's something about here. Indian public intellectuals that have a particularly <laughs> particular way of putting of, people down. Of authority, down. Yeah. yes. Um, I think is, that, it, is that unfair? No, it's not unfair. Although, to be, to be fair, I've seen this operate in Britain as well. That sense of I know better. Um, and this is the best of what has been thought and said. And here it is. And I really won't brook any argument. I remember. Um, uh, I mean, if, I come from a colony too. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. There is something about the way you can be put in your place by a British academic. Yes. yes. And I've witnessed the same thing yes. in India. It may again well be, you know, Macaulay's project uh, that that Macaulay was indeed su- successful in in creating Englishmen uh, who were English in every way but blood and colour. Why why are our opinions worth less uh, as as people from the colonies? The idea is that Britain and Europe are the locus of all thinking, and that thinking radiates out from Europe and Britain specifically, out into the rest of the world. So the metropole, that is the heart of the world, is in London. And ideas are born in London. And out they go into the metrop- into the periphery, that is the colonies. And we in the colonies have a job. We are to take those ideas and make them our own. But we are, in a sense, Caliban. We are the grateful recipients of ideas that Prospero, Shakespeare's Prospero, has put out there. Um, and I think that that idea is very tenacious. It's very tenacious, uh, not just in, in Europe. I think people in the colonies have internalized it. And I think people on the left have internalized it. For you today, uh, teaching at Cambridge, holding these very prestigious positions and being, as it were, a kind of leading public intellectual across a diversity of of areas. Um, is that part of the joy that you're challenging 
Um, I remember, in a sense, if you like, my my career as an as a someone who was able to do uh, a degree of public writing and thinking in Britain was, in a sense, uh, inaugurated by the conservative historian Neil Ferguson, uh, with whom I locked horns uh, on the BBC. Um, and I think that that was a, a, a sort of watershed moment for me because it was the first time I had faced down in public someone who was imperious, authoritative, uh, authoritative rather, and extremely narrow in his thinking of, of, on these matters. Let's dig into that then, yeah. because Neil Ferguson is, if you could imagine a contemporary embodiment of the kind of British upper middle class gent striding the world mm-hmm. stage, g- giving opinions. I mean, he is very yes. respected in some quarters. Yes. He teaches at Harvard. He's moving to Stanford. Yes. He's written some pretty influential books and columns. Why is taking him on particularly such a moment for you? And and tell me about when that happened. Um, well, as you said, he embodies all of these strains, uh, which I think absolutely need to be challenged. They are there's nothing you know very innocent about somebody who is on the one hand offering us a tremendously reactionary and in many ways false and fraudulent understanding of history, but also carrying that understanding of history into advocating for very dangerous forms of militarism, violence and conservative economics in the present day. For me, he embodies the dangers of writing a very narrow history where one puts oneself on one's own class interests and race interests at the center. Uh, but taking that history and trying to shape the present as well. I mean, he's tremendously influential, for instance, in neoconservative circles and, and neoliberal circles as well. Um, and I think for me, it is, is important to challenge that reading of history as well as that reading of the present. So when and where do you lock horns with him? So this is on the BBC on a program called Start the Week, uh, which is uh, quite well known in Britain. Uh, the discussion is about empire. And uh, I remember that um, Ferguson, of course, trotted out all the canards about empire and why it was a jolly good thing, really, despite a few massacres and uh, genocides here and there. Um, and I was quite surprised that very few uh, were willing to take him on. Um, and and so I just brought out a few counterfacts and a different way of looking um, at the project. And that created tremendous controversy, so much so that that evening, the BBC took the trouble uh, to bring another Indian woman onto their program. And she was brought on specifically to say that I had been wrong and not all young Indians thought in the way that I did. Uh, and I thought that that was a tremendous moment. And I wrote a very, very angry letter to the BBC saying that this was a very classic instance of playing off natives against each other and shame on them. But I think I, it, it galvanized me into, into thinking that, well, actually, alternative voices had to be out there. And if not, then this kind of very narrow narrative that Ferguson and his ilk were providing would, uh, would persist. And from that point on, I start to write and think more publicly. And, you know, I was, I'm very fortunate in the sense that, uh, you know, being at Cambridge has, has uh, opened doors. And it, it makes me aware of how in incredibly privileged that context also is. Um, And it's not innocent. You know, there are many people who are deeply intelligent and articulate, but not everybody gets to uh, go on the BBC or or write in The Guardian. Um, And I think that, that again, there's a curious contradiction there. On the one hand, a lot of what I say is against the grain of the establishment. But on the other hand, the establishment has made that possible. So what is it that you want to say to these men, these sort of white men that represent something? 
I want to say to them that your narrative is actually very self-serving. It is very narrow and it actually will not stand in a world that is globalizing and in a world where different kinds of self-assertion are taking place. Um, and that if we persist in using the narrative of empire as essentially benevolent and essentially good, despite a few mistakes here and there, we're just simply clearing the ground for more mistakes. So is there a more broad-based version of that message that actually the world needs to think about more carefully right now as demographics shift? Yes, there is. Um, and so in the forthcoming book, what I've argued is that all countries, including Britain, have dissident traditions. And these are dissident traditions that are uh, much more expansive in their understanding of what it means to be human. They're much more universal in their respect for other cultures and for other ways of being without necessarily being relativist or without, you know, saying anything goes. Um, and I'm arguing that really what we need to take more seriously is the history of dissidents and the relationship between dissidents. It still seems incredibly easy in the contemporary context to look at so many crises in the world and you hear the refrain, it was better when. Mm -hmm. When there is not a clear and apparent alternative global order, as it were, how do you actually change that narrative? Uh, I see. Well, one is to point out uh, that there are other narratives and those narratives have actually been very deliberately pushed out of the frame. So when I uh, write in this book about the relationship between British dissidents on empire and anti-colonial struggles out there in, in the colonies, what I'm arguing is that there were people who had a different vision of how the world should be, who were trying to put alternative narratives out into the, into the public sphere, but were deliberately marginalized and were often uh, not heeded. Um, and I'm, I'm trying to, what I'm arguing is that in fact, the, the, the narrative that we have of the way things are, and this is how things have always been, is wrong. Um, but it's very deliberately put out there and, del and deliberately protected from challenge. Um, and I think that what is important to do is to bring these counter narratives back into the frame. Now, I'll give you one example. Um, the, you, you must know of the Roads Must Fall movement, which begins in South Africa and then you know, goes on to Oxford. Now, uh, when Roads Must Fall uh, started to happen at Oxford, I was astonished by the extent to which a lot of intellectuals, largely white, though not only white, um, came out and condemned the students for being silly twits who didn't understand history. And one of the things that they said uh, was that the students didn't understand that back in the 1870s or 1880s, everybody was agreed on empire and Rhodes was, can't be judged by present day standards because back in the day, everybody thought empire was rather good. But that's wrong. Uh, you know, if you look at the archives from the 19th century, there are a lot of dissidents in Britain, including Professor Goldman Smith, who is at Oriel College, who comes back to Oxford in the uh, late 1800s and says, you know, it's such a pity that they've made a statue for a man such as Rhodes. So, you know, there are people in the 1800s saying this man is terrible and he's not a good role model and there shouldn't be a statue of him. But we persist in the idea that, you know, at one point empire was loved by everybody and now it's all gone to the dogs. And that's just not quite true. You now have this platform, as you say, because of your access to the media, you have a voice. What do you plan to do with it? Um, first, I should say that access to the media is not a simple matter in this day and age. Um, 
I'm very aware as I write for the media um, uh, how difficult it is. Um, and, uh, you know, as anybody who's gone through the pitching process understands, it's there stands between you and a, a prospective audience, uh, a range of editors and a range of other factors that determine what you can and cannot say. So I would never, for one thing, say I have easy access to the media. But I would say that I... To the extent that I have access to the media, I will use it to put counter narratives out there and to put into view that which is routinely swept under the carpet. I want to help along with, you know, millions of others change the world as it is. It's a, you know, we do live in a terrible, in terrible times. We live in an era of enormous inequality, enormous violence. Um, and I cannot see how the status quo can persist uh, without something shifting. And I think it can only be done if, you know, everybody does a small amount towards changing the dominant narrative. Priyam Gopal will leave you to change the world. Thank it, you. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mosser. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias, and our executive producer is Danielle Harvey.